You're listening to an ACA podcast. For those who've not met me, um, my name's Miriam. I'm a curator at ACA, Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. And I'd like to start by acknowledging that today I'm speaking to you um, as a visitor on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. I'd like to extend my respects to elders and ancestors past, present and emerging of these lands and of the lands on which you're all joining us today from. Um, and we've got the really wonderful opportunity to chat today with Ellen van Nieuwen um, for what is the very last session of the ACA Book Club for 2020. Uh, so this has been a really nice program that's been largely aligned with uh, the project of digitising ACA's past exhibition catalogues so that they're able to be reviewed for free on ACA's website. Uh, and we felt that one of the ways we could celebrate this was actually to check in with some of the extraordinary writers, thinkers, and commentators who've contributed to ACA's publications over the years uh, and to see what they've been writing more recently. Uh, so Ellen, of course, contributed a text uh, that accompanied the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism in 2017. And I think my colleague Bianca is popping the link to that text if you're interested uh, into the chat. Um, Ellen, I'll briefly introduce you before we um, get started. Uh, for those of you who, uh, the few of you who might be unfamiliar with Ellen's work. Uh, Ellen is uh, an author, editor and educator of Munjali and Yungaba uh, and Dutch heritage who lives and works in Mianjin. Um, they write fiction, poetry and nonfiction. Uh, Ellen's first book, Heat and Light from 2014 was the recipient of the David Unapon Award and the Dobby Literary Award and the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Indigenous Writers. Their first poetry collection, Comfort Food, was published in 2016 and won the Tina Kane Emergent Award and was also shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier Literary Awards with the Kenneth Sleaser Prize. Ellen is also the editor of multiple collections and currently has a call out open for Unlimited Futures, a collection of speculative fiction by writers who identify as Black living in Australia. Throat, the text we've gathered here today to chat about, uh, is Ellen's latest poetry collection and has been received to great acclaim, uh, including as the recipient of the inaugural UQP Quentin Bryce Award uh, and has also been shortlisted for the 2020 Judith Wright Calanthe Award for Poetry. Ellen, hi. <laughs> it's, been a, uh, <laughs> it's been a pretty wild time um, uh, in 2020, for want of a better word, um, to launch a publication. Mm. Um, How's it going? <laughs> First of all, how are you? Yeah, I'm I'm well, thanks. Yeah, I would like to acknowledge where I am here on Yagara and Turrbal Dagen, paying my respects to the the living ancestors of this place and elders past, present and emerging. Um, this is this country is a neighboring country to where my mob are from, uh, the Malanjali people from just south of Mianjin, Brisbane. Um, so I'd like to also pay my respects to them as well um, and just say that I'm really pleased to be here and to be in discussion with you and thank you to everyone who is on here for our digital book club. And I'm, I'm actually doing pretty well. I really have nothing to complain about. I'm really feeling for um, those of you that are in this this long lockdown, um, but at the at the moment life in Queensland is is pretty good, and we're 
trying to use this year as an opportunity to um, get our community stronger and get it more connected um, and using the, the two worlds, the digital world and the physical world to be able to do that. And yeah, like when you told me that my book um, was, yeah, like going to be released in the year of a pandemic, I think, I think any author would have said, would have preferred, you know, the book to maybe come out last year or like, you know, like the timing of it, um, especially since my book came out in, in April, uh, April, May this year. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things that were cancelled. Uh, it was great that the book had so much interest and that I was invited to speak at four different festivals overseas. Um, uh, but of course, uh, you know, all of that travel was cancelled, uh, but some of it was replaced with digital events, which were very successful and still very satisfying. And I'm still finding, you know, I was reflecting on it earlier. I, I still, I think this was the right time for this book, um, for me personally, but also from what I hear from readers. And, you know, it's just meant to be this way. And I really hope that if if any of you like pick up the book, that you get some comfort from it and you get some pleasure from it, um, because I really think poetry is like something that's like can be really enjoyed at this particular time, but just like all any time because I'm such a poetry lover, I could read poetry anytime. But I've been really finding um, a lot of comfort and pleasure from reading poetry myself and. This book is kind of just meant to kind of sit with you and stay with you um, as a friend might, um, but also kind of interrogate you a little bit as well. I think it's kind of not, a, not an easy read in terms of like wanting to sort of talk about a lot of big things, but I think they're things that we're talking about anyway on a day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely, Ellen. It's been, I really enjoyed actually the privilege of being able to tap into some of those international digital um, contributions mm -hmm. that you've, you've already given, you know, even being uh, in lockdown as we are, it's been quite, um, yeah, quite, quite amazing. Um, and so some of the people joining us today may not have had the chance yet to read the book. I wonder if maybe you could give us a little bit of a summary of the way that you like to introduce um, yeah. you, the elevator pitch, if you like. Yeah, um, I'm not good at them. <laughs> I would get out of the elevator if <laughs> given that, you know, option. Um, I think that I'll, I'll just start with explaining the title, Throat, um, which is, you know, can mean so many things. Um, but I got this title from, uh, you know, I was writing poems and then I wasn't sure what the overall architecture or the theme of the work was. Um, and I was reading all of these poetry books that uh, were kindly lent to me by my friend Paula. And, you know, these were poetry books largely written in the early 90s by women of colour. And Paula lived in London for a while and she picked up this book from a black British poet um, called Patience Agbibi and the book is called Raw and I, you know I've tried to buy it but I think it's out of print so that's what I'm saying it was like a very kind of special kind of unique moment to be able to sit down 
read that book at that particular time and then feel like this quote just jumped out at me. Um, and uh, the quote was um, uh, talking about, you know, the back of the throat um, as a place of, you know, like, um, yeah, like for me, the quote, no one's found until they find themselves hurting in the back of the throat. Just so, it was just so perfectly put that it just stuck with me. And so I've used it as a, the epigraph of this book, but also as a way to sort of be able to articulate what I'm writing about. And what I'm writing about is feeling like you've got something stuck at the back of your throat that is stopping you from like living and expressing yourself um, and, you know, like um, marginalised groups can't always feel like this, always feel that, that silence and that shame and, um, you know, we, we keep getting pushed back and told that our voice doesn't matter. Uh, but for me, I just wanted to be like, I just want to say what I want to say and not like be uncompromising about it and just have fun and, and play with language and feel that necessity of what I'm saying. And um, I felt the power of the words while I was writing them. Um, and I particularly thought about myself as a young person, uh, you know, 20 years ago. 10 years old just like bullied so much that I just like didn't speak to anyone except for in my immediate family group um but listened a lot and learned a lot and observed a lot and was was a very sensitive soul and I think you know that I've been able to find a use for that observation and that sensitivity and that imagination and I've been able to turn it into something positive and being able to kind of release myself from that trap of feeling like no one cares no one wants to know what I'm going to say if I say something someone's going to laugh at me um, my words are going to be used against me um, for me this was like an acclamation of who I was and especially incorporating some Yugumbe language in this book through the, you know, the collaboration with my cousin, Sean Davis, all of that just like gave it like that, made it something that I was proud of. So fantastic, thank you. I wonder if maybe this is a good opportunity. You mentioned family. Um, mm. You're going to read five poems for us today, which is so generous. Um, do you want to start with Bold and the Beautiful? Yeah. Uh, some of this book, it's in five parts. And the first part, um, which is called They Haunt, we Walk, They Haunt, Walk In, is a lot about memories and family and the way that uh, you can have like communal memory or like combined memory or like um, like my mum will be, will be talking and she'll be like, I need to call my sister to ask her about this like we were talking about Nana and mum was just like this is yeah my mum's mum um a beautiful soul and uh I get my middle name from her um Ellen Betty 
and uh, she, mum was saying that she uh, used to be this like person that could just cook anything and make it taste really good and, you know, just out of necessity, like not having much money, um, just like the humble potato becoming this like gourmet food in the way that she used to cook it. So, and like mum was like, I never had a bad meal. Like we were just so blown away. We were just like yum. And mum was like, oh, I need to like call my sister to sort of, she used to make this jaffle kind of thing with the potato and I need, I want to find out. I can't remember the specifics about this dish. Um, so that's an example of like how I think we always do this with our families. Like we're, we understand that knowledge is so important and those stories are so important, uh, particularly when people have passed, um, like my nan, um, who's no longer on, on this planet, but is in our memory and is in the spirit and, and in, in, you know, in, in countries, but not, you know, we can't call her and be like hey what did you put in that dish um so the the function of memory and communal and familial memory and so I wrote a poem that's about my nana um but I did it from like it came from a conversation with my mum and from my auntie um and like I mentioned before there's also a couple of other poems in that same section that do this do similar things Bold and beautiful. I feel burdened by what I forget. I need others to help me remember. Nanny's like my mum. She's generous and special. She'll give her grandkids her last dollar. She'd give us everything she got. She was real good with the one-liners. Her doctors at the Prince Charles would tell you that. Like one time she was rushed in after having a heart attack and the doctor said, it's okay, Miss Curry. You're here now. We'll get you a comfortable bed. And she said, I didn't know they had any here. Like when she couldn't breathe properly and mum would hum songs she knew hold her hand, humming these songs. And the first thing that Nanny said when she could talk again was, can you stop that now, please? When mum reminds me, I see Nanny in the bingo halls, the smokers area of the Wavell RSL, speeding her scooter through Chermy and in her armchair watching B and B. We're still keeping up with Ridge and Brooke for your nanny, rolling her eyes till the next ad break. I remember mum looking after her and her looking after mum and me and my brother. This stitching of care between generations pulls us all in. Maybe this way I'll feel even closer to nanny as I get older and I care for my mum. That's the real story. That's my family. Thank you. That um, phrase, I mentioned it earlier, um, stitching of care between generations pulls us all in. It's just so evocative. It's something that has stayed with me since I've 
read that text, it's such a beautiful phrase um, that I think also captures the complexity and the number of ideas that you draw in through the whole publication really from you know, political, environmental, personal. Um, I wonder, you've also talked a little bit about poetry um, being about figuring out how you feel. You've written that elsewhere. Um, mm -hmm. And the kind of, uh, you know, how you came to writing poetry um, through writing fiction, maybe talk a little bit about your writing as a background. Yeah, um, I was always a bit of a scribbler and dreamer. Um, and um, I probably been writing since I was in primary school had a really beautiful grade one teacher that gave me some extra support in grade two and um, encouraged that kind of imagination. And so I had, I had like exercise books full of writing when I was um, at school. Uh, then, you know, I decided to pursue a bachelor of arts, which was a really good decision for me um, but I think it definitely worried my parents, you know, like thinking about, you know, what I was going to do. Um, but for me, that was really the only thing that I really loved to do. Uh, so decided to, to do it. And it, it felt quite luxurious to sort of spend three years um, just reading and talking about writing and um you know, and being able to sort of tap into some of the other art forms as well. Um, uh, but I was sort of still finding myself and still finding my voice. And um, so the writing that went on to be published was probably written a few years or maybe sort of just maybe a few months after the, the uni degree and then sort of starting to sort of um take what was useful from that degree because it was very very much from a white perspective and it was very kind of male eurocentric uh, very hetero and just starting to like read new authors that helped expand my idea of what literature was as well as being like involved in the local like Murray unit at uni like just hanging out with people and just realizing that I wasn't alone and that there's this huge community that's not just my family but other people that my own age that come from everywhere and wanting to do things and um yeah it's sort of so when I my first book came out in 2014 and that won the David Unipon Award, as you mentioned earlier, and it won it in uh, 2013. And um, part of the award was publication with University of Queensland Press, who, uh, you know, have had that award for, you know, since 1989. So it's really being able to be a bit of a platform for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers all over the country. And uh, it was great to just join those uh, footsteps with my own footstep and release that book Heat and Light which uh, was had so much young raw energy me just like coming out just being like this is who I am um, and just like really yeah writing this fiction that was 
I didn't feel like I, it needed to conform to being a novel or short stories or sort of somewhere in between. Um, and then, yeah, and then also have always written poetry and, and have the, the two other books or poetry books. You mentioned um, just then the influence of being around other writers. Um, one of the texts you're going to read for us today, Only Black Queer in the World, speaks really beautifully about what other writers have meant to you. Um, you write about Natalie Harkin, who you also mentioned in the Unfinished Business essay. Um, and the other day when we were speaking, you, you spoke about Natalie Diaz and the enjoyment of being paired with a writer who you really enjoy reading. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you very generously at the end of um, the publication provide us with a list of um, acknowledgements and references and that kind of rich um, lineage and sharing. I wonder if maybe you could just talk a little bit about what other writers mean to you yeah. and how oh, that yeah. kind of influences what you're reading, you know, those sorts of things. Absolutely, like nothing in isolation, like, um, you know, like it's a kind of cliche of like you can't, uh, you can't do what you, you don't see. Like I had to sort of see the work of, black fellow writers um and be like okay yeah I can do this too uh and then you know like just reading so much um even just reading stuff from white perspective and you know reading stuff from all around the world um you know my my pet interest is reading um like first nations writing from you know here at Toronto, New Zealand um Turtle Island um but yeah like just trying to get my hands on as much reading as I possibly could uh you know because it's like I guess like a musician like wanting to like write a song without listening you know having listened to much music before like kind of it gives you a bit of a sense of what's possible and maybe what hasn't been done yet and I don't mean that really strongly because I feel like there's no new ideas it's just that we and we very believe that strongly as Indigenous people we're just continuing what has been done before and that's why we always honour and acknowledge because um, our people have been practising and been you know telling stories and been saying the same things for like so long and I'm just I just benefit from all of that and I'm just here um, continuing that and saying it in my own way. But you can see with poetry, like, it's a very dynamic form and I was like, well, what am I going to do with this? Like, start to get a bit more confidence to not just write, um, you know, poetry that was very, uh, the sort of poems that I had written before, but potentially do more experiments and maybe write some narrative poetry and um, maybe like play with how it looks on the page and uh, do all of these different things um, that I wouldn't have been able to do without having read works like Natalie Harkin who you mentioned beautiful person and just so deadly just in so many ways she had this amazing book that came out last year that's called Archival Poetics and it's like shaped like a little archive box and then there's like three little uh, inserts that you can pull out and 
she's using like what's called docu poetry, which is like building poetry from like documents. And in her case, it's all these documents that um, record what has been done to her people, particularly the women in the community and her grandmother. And, um, you know, this is all in the state archives. Um, and so she's kind of countering that narrative because that's from very much from this perspective with her own culture and, and doing this in a really beautiful way. It's a very physical object. It's, um, it's you know, using a lot of type typography and design to sort of like really do something communicate something really interesting and special and so I was very I was influenced by that book um and in the only black queer in the world who which I might read if you think that we have time because it's quite a longer piece I do list all of these beautiful black queer people that have helped me um feel confident in who I am because you know, growing up, I was seen as different, not only because I was Aboriginal, but also because I was gay. So for me to have like uh, black queer role models was like some people that I could actually see was just like so fundamental. That's probably the reason why I'm like here today. So yeah, I want to, I just keep honouring, I'll just keep mentioning these names as long as I keep writing because it's so important to um to to acknowledge them and to honor that my writing exists because of them it would be fantastic if you if you feel that you can read that um mm. text it's such an important um moment in, i think in that section of the book yeah it's so it's, it's still in that first section hey um and it's like it's one of those like the book's made up of poems that were coming from that central question throat what's stuck at the back of my throat what can I say what what do I want to say um, but also you know a mix of commissions over the years like people asking you to to write a poem for a particular occasion and in this case it was um, the 40-year anniversary of Mardi Gras in Sydney and um Maeve Marsden, who some of you might know, who runs a series called Queer Stories. Um, she, yeah, she got in contact with me and just said, write, write something about um, being, you know, like, yeah, about Indigenous presence at Mardi Gras um, or a personal story. And I decided to do both. And I she probably wasn't expecting a poem I think maybe it was more uh the thing is I, I get you know I'm able to convince people but I think um a lot of the time people expect a very kind of article non-fiction piece uh but for me I can do more in a poem anyway that's enough introduction I'll just read it the only black queer in the world. I was the only black queer in the world. I had many difficulties. I didn't know how to tell my family. 
I hadn't seen Stephen Ola Khan even on Black Comedy yet. We hadn't watched it together over dinner. TV didn't save me. I hadn't seen Electric Fields perform in a sweaty old meat market with a group of friends who had similar feelings. I hadn't heard Zachariah's deadly voice singing Nina. I hadn't yet read Lisa Belair and cried sitting on the carpet in the library over sharply written work that spoke to me and my experience. I started a blog. I got many comments. People were always asking me what it was like to be black and queer. I hadn't yet started thinking about gender as a colonial construct or examined my ideas of masculinity and femininity. I hadn't yet realized that my relationship was interracial. I started another blog, thoughts about interracial queer relationships featured. I hadn't yet got a crush on KMT yet and listen to her track that samples cold chisel, will your cruel attitude last forever? I wondered if my parents would ever accept my future partners, if I'd ever have the chance to legalize my relationship, have children, ask for more, not for less. Some nights were really lonely and I created Kathy Freeman as a lesbian and Prince as an Aboriginal. I got trolled, deleted my social media accounts, and the only known evidence of black queer existence was destroyed. I hadn't yet seen that doco and Uncle Jack Charles and met black queer elders who knew of a previous time Australians had to vote on the rights of a groups of people. These elders know and knew what it was like to hear their rights discussed by people outside of their group. I hadn't yet been to Mardi Gras. I saw the white gaze and the white gaze I was used to and then I saw black queers everywhere and every conversation was an insight into a black queer past, the street becoming a site of multi-time, the past present beat, the future love, and 40 years of black queer pride spread into more than 60,000 years of we have always been here. My dance joined a big dance. I saw a Radri Yorta Yorta lesbian couple who had been marching since the beginning who chanted stop police attacks on gays, women and blacks in 78 and they told me off for knowing fuck all. Every chant is a line of a continuing poem and I'm learning the words. Every chant is a line of a continuing poem and I'm learning the words. I saw the flag sparkle. I saw gays from everywhere, from Maury to Perth. I saw a black Captain Cook, Malcolm Cole in 1988, the year of the first Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander float. That float should have been there the first float that year, but mob didn't open the parade until 2005 when Arnie Karen Cook and Arnie Lily Shearer walked out each with a coolerman of curling leaves, smoking the parade. The small leaf fire was started on the corner of Liverpool and Elizabeth Streets and in parade time, it never stopped. I thought properly about what it meant to be marching on stolen land and that Roger Mackay in 1982 
when he carried the flag into the march, made the point that the Sydney Gay's Golden Mile was the unceded land of the people of the Aura Nation. It was our modes of community and belonging white queers craved, and this influenced how they made their scenes. I woke up on a mattress in a queer share house with a text from an, another black queer asking me to go out on a date. I consumed black queer art and I created it. I saw Parkinji Barkinji artist Raymond Zeta's work at the Art Gallery of South Australia and I cried. I felt the heavy loss for all of the ones killed, murdered, missing. For the erasure of black queers in every capital, every city and every town in Australia. And I told myself I was lucky to have stayed alive and I counted the times I thought I would die. I began to know the stories of more and more and more and more and more black queers who had died. I knew them as ancestors. I read Natalie Harkins, Yvette Holtz, Nayuka Gori's, and Alison Whitaker's writing online and in bookstores. I saw love for black queers everywhere. Outside the city, the sky sends me hints. The walks on country along the river keep me safe. I saw the colors of my own heart and they were not the colors of isolation and fear. So fantastic, such beautiful words for our time and more. Um, I'm interested when you, when we were talking about which text you might read today and which text you've read previously, you wanted to um, select a few that were different, but I, I noticed that um, it's really important each time to reference Treaty, um, the text that sits in the middle almost the middle of the book, I think mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, do you want to talk a little bit about that text and the kind of discussions you've already had around that text as well? Yeah, sure, yeah. And it's it's not a not a, a piece that I've read very, maybe once, not very often, um, but it's an important landmark in the book. Um, I've got the book here so you can see it. It is kind of halfway, yeah, maybe symbolically it's halfway in the book um so you've got this this contract page and then you've got the write-up of you know what potentially you're signing i've had a few um people um especially when uh dr anita heist did my book launch way back in may and a few she encouraged people to sign sign it and uh, uh, post the, the photo and put it up on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Um, so it's, you know, and this is all in absence of a treaty. We are the only Commonwealth country that doesn't have a treaty, never had a treaty. And of course, we are working towards treaty making processes um, in several states. Uh, whether you know this will lead to any outcomes we'll have to see but um i really understand treaty um as a as a mutual agreement between two parties um that kind of really sets out the relationship 
And when I went to um, Canada a couple of years ago and got to hang out with First Nations writers and artists, a lot of them told me that they were, even though that they there's there was treaties that set up in Canada. They, they, there's a lot of disappointment in um, how that is managed and how you know how much control they have over their land and and how much um, wretched uh, what do you, what do you call it about how much um, yeah what they kind of get from that agreement um, and so it feels like it's not an even relationship. Um, but I know that there was a playwright there that really amazed me because she, whenever she would have a play on, she would write a treaty that she would present to the playwriting, uh, the theatre company, and, you know, who were a, a white theatre company um, or largely non-Indigenous. And she would say, you know, like this instead of like when you do a commission and you get a contract and that contract is, you know, we have this, we have contract law in Australia, you know, we have, this is usually a standard contract. Um, but she was like, no, the, these are, these are my terms and conditions. You are going, you, and it was largely because they were treating her as an individual, but she represented a whole community. So she said, when we first meet, it's going to be, all of my elders are going to be there and just stuff like that. Like she was really asserting her rights as a sovereign person. Um, and so I start when I was writing my book, there was this discomfort within me about where we are as a nation and, you know, how I'm very much like I'm writing, you know, a book um what what can I what can this book do um how can I like stretch it to its full possibility and so I got this idea really like laid on in the process that I would write um a treaty uh but it would be it's called a treaty of shared power between the the book's reader and author so is me outlining our relationship as author and like it's kind of like me just talking directly like instead of you know just kind of being like this is how it is you know and this and so I'll just I'll, I'll read it um and yeah so we got it in very last minute um just before the book was going to print and um I sort of surprised the publisher with it um, and I was kind of wondering how they were going to react um, but it was mainly positive and well I didn't let them change anything or whatever but they were shocked but then they were like this is great and I was really great that they saw the the value in it and then they were like but maybe you should have it at the front and I was like no I want to have it in the middle because um that's part of the experience of reading the book um and uh so this come yeah this comes right in the middle of the book and i i think it it has that kind of 
it kind of like you feel like you've been reading it and then you're like, ah, oh, okay. And hopefully it makes you start to question things that you've, the, the experience of reading the book. Treaty of Shared Power Between Throats, Reader and Author, 2020. I don't want this to go into the pile of broken treaties. If there is a need to formalize a relationship between the parties, I'd like to do so in poetry. English is a requisite language of this treaty, but ideally the agreement would be tabled in Yugambe. Here we recognize my country was invaded, not civilized. We recognize my sovereignty and agree that I exist independently of the Australian government and I'm capable of entering into agreements without government intervention. I'm not sure whom I'm entering into this agreement with. Are you white fella, black fella, or a fella of another country? Whose country do you belong to and whose do you occupy? What is our relationship with each other? What are our expectations of each other? Does this treaty cover the time you spend with this book or does it go further? What of UQP's claim? That's my publisher, University of Queensland Press. Does the fact that I've entered into an agreement with a non-Indigenous owned press complicate this treaty? What about the non-Malanjali Yukumbe people employed in the production of this book? Does their involvement allow them a share? Who is the custodian of this book? How do we coexist on this page? How can we reimagine custodianship? Is this an agreement or a series of unanswered questions? Are you willing to enter an agreement that is incomplete and subject to change? So good. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, I mean, your your use of language and it, it oscillates across the publication so beautifully from formal to informal. There's text and online references. I also, um, we didn't really touch on this in our earlier discussion, but um, the way that you talk about climate and the environment, it would be really lovely to hear you speak a little bit, you've referenced, you know, the climate as body and um, mm. climate as the only bank we have left in some of the texts, you know, maybe just how that's wo woven through and, and layered uh, within some of the, the texts. It'd be really lovely to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I was just thinking this morning that if, if we love the land and we nurture the land, you know, that equals peace, you know, like that equals a peaceful existence and how my people being you know southeast queensland northern new south wales it was paradise you know before colonization we only had to work i think they had scientists that came in and did a study or something and realized that we would had the best lifestyle out of you know any indigenous group in the world because we only had to work like three four hours a day because you know, it's, it's paradise and um, just beautiful biodiverse country. Um, but of course, it's, it's become very like exploited um, by all sorts of different, you know, industries, um, our water, 
has been taken, um, you know, tourist, tourism industry buildings, you know, like, you know, the amount of animals that are threatened in a very short amount of time and also our plant life as well. Um, it's just like, it's, it's very unsettling. Um, but, it, you know, at the same time, country's very much here and has a presence and we still like we appreciate it every day just like living here you know I love I love it you know and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else because it's just somewhere it just nourishes me to sort of be here knowing that my ancestors have been here for thousands of years um I'm feeling proud of that um so I, I write about climate a lot uh maybe it's sort of like not something now actually interestingly i'll just mention this like it's sort of like shop talk that people don't really talk about but i had two covers for this book the first cover was um uh josh who's my cover designer he's a white fella he's done all my covers so far and i love i've liked what he's come up with i think he's a he's a very talented cover designer who works with a lot of writers um, his first design was of the black-throated finch, which I do mention in this book. Um, another, you know, like throat being meaning so many things, another reference to throat. Um, you know, the, the black-throated finch is a symbol um, against the um, Adani Carmichael coal mine um, in... North Queensland and you know it's there's been a lot of research saying that you know this mine will just completely devastate sorry that's my puppy devastate um this already threatened bird um so Josh had a picture of the bird on the front cover but I really wanted my face on the cover because you know I'm I'm like that uh, no I kind of think you know, both covers were good and both covers spoke to what the book was. This one, you know, having the colours celebrating the diversity of gender gender and sexuality and, you know, who we are. Um, I've never seen a queer First Nations person on a cover of a book before, you know, just to have that representation. But also knowing that we are our animals and we are our plants as well. Uh, that bird is not not my bird my my people don't have a connection with that bird but it's it's important for me to reference that as someone who's a queenslander and someone who's really committed to uh connecting with other indigenous mobs as well and because you know like i said climate is you know this country is our only only bank you know it's the most precious resource and i'd love to see us going down the path of like HRO New Zealand in like giving um, legal rights to like bodies of water, rivers. I think maybe the the Bunurong people have um, got some legal representation of the Yarra, but like we need to sort of put that in place um, as much as we hope they will respect that. Um, but just to give it that acknowledgement that we are nothing without this and you know, for me, it's very tied up with identity as a young person. And being here, 
And, you know, there's this poem called Queenslander where I talk about being a young person, being in the northern suburbs of Mianjin, being in Peter Dutton's electorate, and just how there's a lot of propaganda around, um, you know, like all of this stuff and me just kind of thinking, you know, hanging out with people my own age and people way younger than me, thinking how are they not, you know, they, you can say that you, you know, want to support the environment and you can believe in climate change, but your, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis is like, not reflecting that and just exploring that um, kind of juxtaposition or tension between those two things. So fantastic. I think we could continue this chat. I've got so many more questions, I think, because the publication just delves into so many uh, different areas. We haven't had any questions from the audience who are also evidently wrapped in what please ask questions I'd love, to, I'd love to hear from you thank you but um, maybe maybe if um maybe we can prompt some questions with a, another reading yeah I'll read a poem by the time I've finished I expect some questions from you or um making Miriam work really hard and <laughs> she needs a break um what would you like me to read um well, you'd mentioned Queens, and mm. I think that's quite a nice way to, we had talked yeah. a little bit about influences, but you've also dedicated a lot of poems uh, to people. You've got um, people like Mrs. Do, and this one's mm. for Candy Royale. Um, so perhaps a little bit of introduction to the dedications before the reading. Definitely, yeah. So look, for those of you who don't know, uh, Sister Candy, like incredible person that uh, very recently passed away. Um, at the young age of 30, 36, I believe, um, uh, with cancer and like really kind of uh, really tragic because um, this was a person that was so electric and just had so much life um, and her spirit and her legacy lives on. She's a dynamic performer, like, um just i've seen her perform multiple times and just so infectious so unapologetic um as a palestinian lebanese queer woman she's just really just just really um incredible and just really um just such an influence for so many young people of color i think and uh, young performance artists young young poets and I met her in Alice Springs. Um, we had a yarn. It was a really nice place to, to meet her um, out on that country. And uh, I just will never forget her. And so I wanted to dedicate this poem to her, um, but also to, it's that sort of poem I do, you know, I used to do a lot of poetry readings. You know, you get up and um, you look at those faces in the audience and it's often those, it's often women or gender diverse people that I'm speaking directly to and people of colour, Indigenous people, women that I just know that have had really hard lives. People tell them again and again they can't do things. Um, so it's just that kind of that moment in the set that I usually have it towards the end where I'm just like, 
looking at them and just being like, I hope you know how special and deadly you are and you're going to like leave this feeling inspired by all the poetry that you've listened to, not just mine. And you're, yeah, you're potentially going to go home and start writing that first line of that poem that you've always had within you. So, yeah, that's why I choose to sort of have it towards the end of the set and to, yeah, to dedicate it to Candy because she was one of those people that could do that. You could watch her and then be like, I can do this. Queens. Read my terms and conditions. We all carry wars within us. There was a time where I was into perfection. I was out my, outside myself. The spiritual work didn't get done. I learned to fear fear. I buried mountains. I didn't know that I was just beginning and all of our stories are really about finding a connection that will help with the pain and that we lead back to rivers and flow into seas and we breathe with our mothers and heartbeat with our grandmothers. Despite what is against us, we make excellent choices and are deserving of the fullest and the most warmest love. This is the time of night where we can ask ourselves, how much would we do without fear? Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you I've so much. Question. We've got a question from yeah. the brave Natalie Mason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are you reading at the right at the moment, Ellen? Right at the moment. Well, I just read this book. I'm just I'm mainly showing it because it's on my desk. My desk is just full with books, including books that are prop propping up my um laptop and mic. Um, but this this book, um, I really, really enjoyed this novel one of the best novels I've read in the last five years. Um, and it's by a uh, writer who identifies as two-spirit, queer, Indian from, uh, from uh, Canada, Joshua Whitehead. And um, I just really just loved the voice. Like it's very, uh, it's very sexy. It's very um immediate uh sort of like a story on every single page um and yeah this this kind of coming out scene or kind of anti coming out scene where the young character um you know sort of you know wondering how their grandmother is going to like think and their grandmother's like actually tells them that they're two-spirit it's like we've always had these people in our communities and this is you and you have a very important role to play um, as being someone that um, embodies both genders and yeah it was like just really beautiful novel great writing um, and I don't know why people aren't talking about it because it's it's excellent you know it's it's really a, fault, a faultless novel that came out um, I think 2018 um, and, and then, sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, no, I was just going to say, what are you working on uh, as well? Or please yeah. keep talking about what else you're reading. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so many things. I read um, 
the space the space invaders uh who's the author i've got this really bad memory but it's a great novel uh called space Inv invaders that came out a, a couple of years ago like novella really into the smaller novels um and um, in terms of, I also read Billy, Billy Ray Belcourt's recent book, which was really great as well. Um, and I could just keep going on. Um, but that's three, three recommendations. Uh, I am, I am writing um, a lot of things um, that are kind of going in all different directions trying to keep myself kind of going. Um, it's actually a difficult time, I think, to write. I think there's a lot of like people, I think there's some people that feel like it is a good time to write, but I think people like, oh, you know, you kind of get to be indoors. Like you don't have to go anywhere. Shouldn't that mean you're like writing heaps? <laughs> Isn't 2020 great for writers? I'm like, no, not really. Um, I unfortunately do my best long form work when I'm feeling very emotional, emotionally stable. Um, so um, I'm not really getting that momentum for a long-term project, but I'm just doing bits and pieces and I'm writing poems and not feeling that pressure of having to, um, you know, complete something this year um because yeah it's um I think that anxiety is not that good for creativity so I just do what I can and I've been working on this podcast called um extraordinary voices for extraordinary times and we've got episode three we're recording episode three tomorrow and it's the simple task of just writing one poem um a month and being paired up with another poet who is, writes a poem as well. And it has to be about something that's happening now. It has to sort of speak to this time. And so I wrote a poem um, for that podcast that, that will be coming out soon and had a really great conversation with Charmaine Paper Talk Green, who was the other poet, who's a Yamaji woman from Western Australia. Fantastic. That That's the podcast through UQP? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's University. on the UQP, UQP website. You can check it out. It's also on SoundCloud. Um, and, yeah, we, we're up to episode three. We're doing one episode a month. Fantastic. Ellen, I can't believe an hour has gone by, but mm -hmm. uh, thank you. Thank you so much for reading, for um, talking with us about your work and, and all that goes into it. Um, I think mm. everyone is clapping in their homes from a distance um, in thanks. Um, and also uh, that your publisher, UQP, has generously offered a 20% discount on Throat until the end of September if you haven't already got your copies lined up. Uh, I think one of your reviewers said simply at the end of a beautiful review, read this which is um I think just you know <laughs> uh absolute uh perfect instruction um for us all at the moment so thank you once again um for your time and your generosity and and to all of those who've joined us uh over the months of 
uh, lockdown in book club. It's been really wonderful to check in with our writers uh, who we've previously engaged and also uh, to have these recordings available as podcasts um, via ACCA as well. So thank you. Thank you again. Oh, thank you.